Hello and welcome back to another episode of You Want to Do What with Dan and Julie. Today we've got Olivia Smith on, who is a public historian and TV researcher. Hi, Olivia. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. How are we today? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you both? Yeah, good. Yeah, Looking good, forward good. to a, a long weekend. Oh, I know, aren't we all? I can't believe it's going to be freezing cold there, apparently. <laughs> oh, it's so English. Could it not oh, be yeah, more English, though? So <laughs> Mon- Monday and Tuesday day were gorgeous as well. <laughs> I got sunburned on Monday. It's just typical, isn't it? <laughs> That's very English as well. <laughs> um, Olivia, shall we jump straight, straight in? Do you want to tell everyone a little bit about what you actually do? Yeah, I feel like when I was looking at questions, I was like, what on earth do I do? Like, <laughs> I, I summarised it that I'm a public historian. Um, I think I can come back to that a bit later on. But like, I didn't want to be those traditional boring kind of historians no slack to anyone who's listening but I wanted to do something a bit different and that's education I never I always knew I wanted to do history I never wanted to be a teacher I did dabble in that thought at one point but I thought what can I do that's educating but you don't force people if that makes sense so it's like how can people enjoy history that's not in a classroom mm-hmm. so I work in TV right now as one element of it. So across like historical documentaries and stuff. And the aim is to kind of end up in like period films and dramas. Cause How I love cool. the idea that you can bring history to life. Yeah. That's so it's cool. utterly fascinating. And I do, I've got my own podcast. So it's my shameless little plug there. Khaki Malaki. <laughs> um, I do like blogs and all these kind of just like different bibs. Oh, I just kind of, I dip and dabble all the time. I think yeah. that's the best way to describe my career. <laughs> We had um, we had Alice on who works for you know history here. Yes, Dan's um, podcast. And yes, and and like video like Netflix platform essentially. Yeah. For history. Oh, it's brilliant. So cool. So is that kind of the world you want to get into? That kind of production of history documentaries and things like that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I met um, Dan. I was so, such a fangirl. He followed me on Twitter last year and I couldn't believe it. Like little old me, I thought, God, getting <laughs> such recognition from someone like Dan. So I was quite cheeky and this is very me. I just slid into his DMs and was like, would you like to meet for a coffee to um, have you got any advice and stuff? And be so kind. I then ended up meeting him and his production teams just, just before the lockdown off in a pub off Oxford Circus. And he was so kind and had all these ideas and was basically like, you know, it'd be great to get you on the team if ever. Oh, wow. And obviously then the lockdown happened. So that's, I think it's on the back burner, but I think he knows that I will be knocking on his door. <laughs> if <laughs> the opportunity comes, I will pest my way into his organization if possible. <laughs> so so Dan, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully he's listening. That'd be cool. Yeah. Wouldn't it? <laughs> we're, we're both big history buffs. So we, um, we're, we're excited to, uh, to get you on and, and have a chat. Oh, so what what sort of period of history are you really into? Yeah, what is this public historian? Oh my god! So I think that th- this is why I say I'm a public historian because, like, I look up to the likes of like Dan um, Snow, Greg Jenner, and I think, how can you have a career and you are doing so many different areas of history? Where I see a lot of historians and then one area of history, and I thought that's just not me. As I said mm. before, I dip and dab, and I'm like, there's so much areas of history. Like, I don't want to be, it's like being in a relationship. You don't want to be stuck to one person forever. Well, <laughs> some people do. I'm in my early 20s. It's not for me right now. But <laughs> I don't want to be with one area of history forever because there's so much to do. So for me, I'd say I'm finding my niche now a bit more. I was kept saying I was in like a historical identity crisis, not knowing where I'm going, <laughs> who I'm, what I'm doing. But for me, I'd say it's kind of more like women's history because I do believe there's this huge treasure trove of history there that no one really knows about and 
we're still every year when it comes especially we've just come out of women's um history month that mm. we're learning so much and I would like to positively contribute to that education of it but then I've also that's how I got really into my history career was through military history stuff so my heart will kind of always be with that area of it all but I'm now kind of I'm broadening my horizon so to speak so how does it work with being a public historian uh, you know have you studied this at university yeah so I always knew I wanted to do history um it was definitely on the cards for me especially when I was doing my A-levels I was doing other subjects I thought I don't want to be doing these I just want to be doing history and even at my uh, GCSE I loved history but I didn't know I could do it if that made I didn't know I was good and mm. I thought I did triple science and everything else and I thought oh, I'm going to come out of my A's and all my sciences I got C's and all of them but I got 100% in all my history exams and I was like oh I enjoy this and I actually can do it <laughs> at the same time and when the same thing happened I got like 100% in all my A-levels I was like oh well this kind of makes sense now I've got like this academic proof that something I love I can follow so mm. when I did my degree it was so good to kind of I think I don't know for me the best thing was like not knowing what I was doing because I just enjoyed the degree process and then when I handed my dissertation in I was so sad everyone else was so happy and I was like I love doing this so much <laughs> what can I do and I spoke to my supervisor about it and she's like you can do a master's which is basically like another dissertation it was 30,000 words to kind of broaden your research like skills etc and I thought well I have no clue what I'm doing with my life I might as well get a master's that will help me get from one stage maybe to another in terms mm. of jobs and continue doing something I love and that kind of was it all fell into place really nice for me I feel mm. so what did you what did you write your master's on then so my master's looked at the first world war centenary and it was all about popular memory so if I, so I'll, okay i'll ask you to this what i always do so what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of the first world war um, trenches you're the end of empire i or guess Somme, i guess Oh, okay. End of Empire is very interesting. But like the trenches in the Somme is like so typical because our popular memory of the war is this constant of like blood, mud, death, trenches, you know, the Somme, Ypres, Passchendaele, whatever, all these things that you have. And because years since basically the armistice, the memory of the war has changed so much within a hundred years that when it reached the centenary in 2014, the war memory was so different to what it would have been in 1918. So then throughout the four years of the centenary, we've commemorated, we've oddly celebrated, but one of the key things that was constantly honed in on during the centenary was death. You know, every so what the centenary, I think, in the UK did, and this is what I looked at, is invariably reinforced the popular connotations of like death, mud, blood to people. So that when you think of the First World War, you're constantly reminded of the awful side of it. But no one really thinks of the fact that 80% of the British kind of soldiers, they came home. Yeah. But and I'm, I'm pretty sure after World War One, there was more people died of flu than World well, yeah, War exactly. yeah, the the yeah, Spanish yeah. flu. Exactly. But we don't think of that side of it. But what's I call it, it's like a snowball effect. It's like since then it's rolled and things are threaded into it throughout the years. You know, there was a chap in the 60s. I think he wrote, oh God, it's going back to my master's now, it's been so long. <laughs> but he wrote a book called Lions Led by Donkeys. And, you know, that's kind of a phrase we hear now with politicians and other things. But that really changed how people perceived the war. Then you have things like Blackadder in the 80s and how that really, again, enhance this kind of memory and a negative connotation to it so then at the 
by the time we have it now, when we've got no veterans left to testify against these views, that we have this shared national belief that people are going, yes, the First World War was so awful, muddy, bloody, people died in their thousands because lions led by donkeys. And so, that's the summary of my master's. <laughs> wow. So so what is the what is the opinion you're arguing? It wasn't as awful or it was different to what we're told? I think I would say that it's different to what we're told. Like okay. it's so my my undergraduate dissertation is how I, I really enjoy doing that. And that's how I thread into my master's. So for my undergraduate dissertation, I looked at a book called, um, called Testament of Youth. Um, it's an, a war autobiography by Vera Britton. And she wrote that in 1933. And it was basically her war kind of memoir of the war. Um, but she's writing this. I have to do quick maths here. So I'm a historian, not a mathematic. I don't know, <laughs> 10 plus years after the war. Yeah. And her memory by this point has changed. At this point, she's a pacifist. She's experienced the grief, the heartache of what she went through in the First World War. So naturally, her memory's changed from her actual war diary. If you compare the two, you know there's a difference in it. But people in 1933 are hailing her book as like the the, the memoir of a lost generation you know they're believing every word she said and then in the 70s there was a tv series by the um bbc um on her book and again that kind of is playing up on what's going on in the 70s a bit of it's a feminist kind of revival here and said and then in 2015 they released the film with got kit harrington in um a couple other famous actors and actresses and again that hones in on the mud blood trenches death kind of thing so there's a lot of ways that you can look and say how the war has invariably changed over a hundred years because of the social cultural kind of effects around it that is super interesting because that that must happen to every single period of history you look at and as a historian i guess your kind of role is to unpick that and see you know this is what we think of it as but this is kind of this is the facts that we've got like i can't believe that statistic you said like 80 percent of the people that went to world war one came home yeah, definitely. I remember when I first read that and I had to, like, history Twitter's mental. I remember putting a tweet, I've been like, is is this true? Like, mm. this is definitely a c- real fact because, like, every commemorative service, every armistice, every, you know, in the centenary, the Tower of London put out, um, like, over 800,000 poppies um, around the moat and stuff. But that was to mark, like, each man Commonwealth that had died. So mm. you never forget everyone talks about the dead but you never then go well actually so many men did come home Mm. there's never that reflection I think it's not about taking away from you know bad things happened and it was awful it's just about looking at the you know you know the perspective of of how we look at history right yeah that I think that's exactly it it's the fact that you've we've got this huge kind of like it's like a massive circle when you've got all of this history in it and then bang in the center is what we always look at but no one's looking like going further beyond it to get to the outside edges so what sort of happened to after you've handed your thesis in what what was the journey for you after that oh my god the first kind of three months were awful because like for i'm very much a person of i don't like sitting around i like to be busy i like to be proactive and Again, I finished my master's and was like, what the hell am I doing in my life? I have no clue. Um, I was looking for opportunities, but it's so hard, you know, as everyone knows, this job market. It's like, I have thought I had a master's, which gave me the one up, but then so does every Tom, Dick and Harry. And 
I ended up applying for the three internships with Greg Jenner and because uh, he runs the fantastic podcast as well and he does other little side projects and he personally shortlisted me for all three of them and I sat and had an hour phone call with him which for me a fangirl again was fascinating <laughs> to talk to him about it and he kind of unplucked maybe what I couldn't see in front of me or what I want to do and he said you know, it sounds like you might want to actually end up in TV and doing all this other stuff. It kind of pointed me in the direction of some people that I could be in contact with before I heard back from his internship. So then li- quite literally an hour later, he then rang me again to say, I actually couldn't qualify for his internships because this is one specifically for students. And literally the day before, I just, finished my master's. Oh. So I was, I was gutted because I thought I had that glimmer of hope to be like, oh my God, I'm finally getting some really valuable experience with a big name historian. Like this is going to be huge for me. And then it was just taken away oh. even quicker. But it was the TV kind of idea. I think if I ever win a BAFTA, I'll have to always thank Greg. <laughs> <laughs> because like he really was the starting point for me so by luck then that this is December January I saw as a TV um, kind of jobs company called Production Base and they wanted a military history researcher and I literally the Friday night typed up a you know application didn't think anything of it and the Monday morning I was like you know what I'll have a look and I looked and was like oh my god they want me to ring and I rang them up I had to take my dog to the vets my mum's eyes in the car park ringing this woman up and she's like okay can you come this afternoon and start and I was like what wow. <laughs> oh wait and I was in Norfolk at the time and I said and by chance I was actually then going down the next day to spend um was two weeks look house sitting for my aunt who lives in North London and I went I can be with you tomorrow in the office and she went cool come in for 11 I got the job I was only meant to be for two weeks they then realized my history kind of geekiness and had just got commissioned by the history channel um a world war ii series that was going out for the 75th anniversary of v day last year and they went like okay we now want you to be the head researcher and I then bagged the job for six months oh, which my was god Awesome. Insane. <laughs> well, what does that involve to be a head researcher on a on a TV program, a documentary well, like that? It's just like you work so close with the kind of producer. Our producer was fantastic. You know, she didn't have a history background, so I was then very lucky to bring in a friend of mine. Um, we hadn't worked together, but we we had done the same internship but at different stages so I knew his military history kind of background so we had like a good team with us and you basically requires such a long process and this was so January and we had to get our final cuts done by end of March beginning of April for like the first three episodes so that gave us like two and a bit months to do the research do the filming do the voiceovers do the edits check everything and have it delivered to the channel which my like kind of producer was like this is seriously intense and I think it was a really good kind of moment to be thrown into the tv world first off because it helped me learn so much so we create like research packs for each episode and this is like a 50 page research pack and everything has to be especially for me with the history background it was all historically accurate because the last thing you want is anyone to sit there and go that's not right that's not right and then they slate you for your work so we made sure we were so perfect from the off and then we had to don't you think accuracy in history when people say that's not accurate it's so difficult to be accurate in history because you're playing off different sources and people say different things so like it's, it's so hard to be accurate Oh, it's so hard. And this was our worry. I mean, so 
our the channel it was for was for the history channel and the history channel within historians actually doesn't have the best reputation and so i was very worried about this being my first kind of tv project and what if it was completely slammed by you know historians in the field and so that for me was a big motivating factor to make sure that we weren't going to slip up at all and this even included going through so to make it difficult this company brilliant but they were more big company in America and Latin America and we were the London base so we did all of our pre and post production here in the UK and obviously during the pandemic but our post production was in Mexico so they wouldn't wake up till four o'clock then we'd get emails through for an hour and then we'd wake up the next day with like can I swear yeah (laughs) yeah just like a shit ton of emails for them basically (laughs) and we would then be sat there going oh my god here we go and the language barrier is an issue because if we weren't polite they kicked off in a way and (laughs) I was then getting frustrated being like this is not the right fucking helmet you cannot have this with this episode and the context and I remember one of the episodes we got back and I call it um have you guys watched Band of Brothers yes yes so I I researched our episode five and I made sure it was like the Band of Brothers episode so it's like d-day market garden bastone going through to kind of like the end of the war near enough and i was really kind of chuffed with myself it got structured like approved to be structured like that yeah but when they sent the rough cut through because it was like archive and interview so we had the interviews done by fantastic historians and then we said off some of the archive and they came back and near enough i think i had for every 30 seconds or now for every 20 seconds a comment going no 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 and it was so they did not like it but it was we were like we're not gonna sit here and just let this be inaccurate yeah I think that 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 was kind of going back to you know some historians don't like the history channel I guess the history channel is trying to do it in a way where you know it's a popular appeal where Mm. for history buffs like I guess me you and Judy you know I love it to be accurate and yeah. you know actually portray what happened instead of you know they've got that, that ancient alien series or whatever it is um, yeah but mountain that, that, brilliant. That yeah yeah, yeah exactly. they have some great stuff i mean dan jones does some fantastic series on there and everything yeah. and i think they especially now it's sky history i think there's a huge potential for it but i think it's like it's the alien stuff that just doesn't <laughs> do it credibility at all because you know it's bullshit yeah. like <laughs> yeah it's difficult isn't it but but you know in the world of history obviously you've got your master's in history what's the kind of uh career field look like so you know you've got tv you've Mm. got um you you know the academic side but where can the history degree lead i think it can this is what i've always been told it can lead anywhere because like the history degrees the skills you get you know and i've I don't know if it's because I'm dyslexic, but I always found my analytical skills were really, really good, but I can't put a sentence together kind of thing. It's a very odd situation, but they don't really care about that. And I think a lot of history people don't actually realise the extent you can do. You know, I never anticipated that I would end up in a TV career at all. Mm. You know, like I said earlier on, I contemplated teaching. Um, I contemplated battlefield guiding because like that's really how I started off this journey for myself is when... I was able to actually live on the First World War battlefield. And... Didn't you see Mike Tindall on a load of rugby boys? Yeah. Do you want to know how that come about? Yeah. Oh, my God. Because I know you guys are rugby fans as well, and you've yeah, had yeah, Pado yeah. on. Yes. Um, how did you resist not calling him Pado, though? <laughs> it was so hard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I listened to that. I was like, guys, you had your moment. Um, <laughs> But no, that was insane. So when I got picked for this internship, it kind of, 
but it goes back to near enough like 2015 I went out with my college on a battlefield trip because this again was during the centenary and I did not realize the magnitude of it I'd never been over there before and this is on the Somme and the Ypres salient so the key places of the western front and I got kind of hooked and I definitely got that emotional hook like I don't know any family who were in the first um, world war I've got German family and I know my great granddad was um, in the kind of occupied Holland with the Nazis so I don't know much else about than that but going I found it incredible and I thought I want to be a part of history and I wanted even then to be like how can I help and contribute and know that I've done my bit in the centenary so I dragged my dad back over for the Somme centenary in 2016 and then I was very lucky to and I dragged him over again for the Passchendaele one in 2017 and there I met some great people who were like come back to November with us and we'll show you the ropes we'll show you about um they're all kind of older people to say that he's not to be disrespectful but they know their stuff they've been around for ages and that was really valuable for me mm. and they then introduced me to some interns there and I was chatting to them and afterwards I rang my dad and was like yeah that's gonna be me I'm determined on this so a month later I applied for the job by January we went for like this big kind of they've narrowed us down I think it's for 200 people applied and we got narrowed down to 40 and we we're in this kind of hotel it's very like an open interview and they basically were like here are your commissioners sell yourselves like wow. why what's what's good you know how can you impress us in a way oh my god it, it was so nerving to go around and chat to people and try to be like the best person you could be and then in the afternoon we had like a 12 table interview and I was with the director general she was sat next to me and I was watching her notes I could not decipher what she was doing at all <laughs> but I just think I chatted so much that I hoped I stood out and obviously I did because I got the job and so I literally for me it was in July I graduated the Friday the Monday boom I was over in France and between that time I saw Lewis Moody is very interested in First World War history and kind yeah, of he's all a bit history. of a history buff isn't oh, he? Oh he's a big history buff I had some great chats with him about it like it's really nice that a lot of the rugby guys are quite into it because there's huge connections with rugby and history mm. as well uh, especially the First World War and I tweeted him that I was like oh I'm now going to be an intern like if you ever out in the Somme Lewis come say hello because there's me sliding into whoever's DMs because of just networking <laughs> like mad and I then by chance one of the guys from so it's called a charity called Rugby for Heroes and mm. he messaged me saying well actually we're going to be cycling from Twickenham to Compier which is where the armistice was signed in 1918 and we'd love to have a tour and I thought oh my god this is insane like how have I sorted this out and obviously Mike Tyndall was leading the kind of he was a celebrity cyclist and they came over and this was the final weekend in August I believe and I was so nervous and I got there really early and they were a bit delayed and stuff and I was kind of waiting around and they the first lot turned up before cyclists so I had to do one whole tour with them and then I had to do another tour when Mike and everyone else turned up mm. and I remember the first thing I was chatting with Mike and he was like, God, I've, I've just got such a bad wedgie. And I was like, oh my God, here I am. I've just met Mike Tindall. I'm talking to him about his crotch. Like, this is bad. <laughs> and so we did the tour and he, what Mike did is he, thank God this is when he didn't have Instagram, but he live streamed me on his Twitter the whole oh. I'm sure you can probably go back and find it but um he live streamed the whole thing and my nerves then went through the roof because of that and I just thought no deep breaths let's just do it and so I designed the tour specifically for them to be about the rugby players on the memorial because oh, wow. oh, there cool. was a old Scottish captain there was two kind of real English guys um loads on there and then at the end we finished and I've got on my phone like a really funny live video and it kind of just like 
where did you find her guys and someone's like <laughs> on the internet and I'm just like oh for Christ's sake you sound so awful but that was so fun and then the next day I got to go down to Compier where they did a charity match with the Compier team and I was having a couple of pints of Mike Tindall which that was is just wicked. insane what a story <laughs> I know wow yeah but he wasn't the only people we met like it's weird how the first world war is I don't know how I can describe it like we all think of it as maybe not something that celebrities would be interested in like is it cool if that makes sense Mm. and like for us like one of the cool things was we were stood there and one of my like the guys I worked with went oh my god is that Bear Grylls and we were like what and we looked and there he was with his family and we we're like oh my god that's Bear Grylls <laughs> so we went over and said hello and stuff and they had a battlefield guide with us and we were like how can we get his attention like mm. and we had a key so the memorial we worked at tip about you can't let public up to the top due to health and safety reasons and so that day we had done because we were on media duties and we had to let cameras up there and stuff and this is at the very end of the day and we literally went up to bear and we we're like do you want to go up He's like, no one else can. So we took him out to the memorial and we were doing like telling him all this stuff and his kids and everything were there and his wife. And he just then goes, God, this is so cool. But I wish I had my parachute because I'd so jump <laughs> off right now. I was like, are you kidding me? What? <laughs> all the things to say, like. So it's, it's, it's easy to say that history's really unlocked this whole world for you. You know, you've been doing the battlefield tours, you know, you're working in TV. It, like you're saying, it can really lead to some amazing things. Yeah, I, I, it really has. I mean, for me, I think the real standout and most incredible moment when I was in France was being able to give uh, French President Macron and then Theresa May, our Prime Minister, a tour. And oh, wow. that was insane because, like, we had all heard, so this is coming up for the armistice, and obviously, like, this is 100 years since silence on the Western Front. It was so poignant. But we had heard it was Trump coming over, and we all went, nah, if it's Trump, we're not doing it. Like, <laughs> we don't care. We're just not. But then when it got changed to being Macron and May, and we were like, okay, we can do this. Mm. And it was mad. Like, the day itself, we had to get to site so early. We did, we had to be on Good Morning Britain to start off with quick filming. Um, then we had to go get ready. And it was just like a waiting day. And the weird thing was, we went into our, we had our base in like the gardener's site. And I walked in and there was like this posh Audi in there. I was like, oh, this is a fancy car. Who's here? And then these two chaps were like loading up their snipers. And I was like, oh, oh my, my God, God. <laughs> this means business. So, and then as I walked out to go walk around the memorial, because they shut it all off due to security. They had no word of a lie. I think I counted no enough 20 trucks of the gendarme. And obviously that's the French paramilitary police. It's not oh like our, God. you know, our policemen. These boys mean business. And somehow <laughs> they hid themselves around. So when it came to us doing our tour, there was eight snipers on the memorial pointing at us at high. And I was like, this is just bizarre. If we take one step out of line, like we're How gone. terrifying. There was 300 gendarmes hidden that you just couldn't see. And then wow. right behind us was the world's press pen. And like, I now know how some celebrities might feel in a way because the shutters are so daunting. And like mm. having all of that on you just to then try and talk to two world leaders was insane. Yeah. <laughs> like even saying it now, I'm like, well, that happened. Yeah. Like this isn't so real. Cool. <laughs> so Oh, obviously you've uh, we've all been in lockdown for a while, but what what is it you do now? How 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 is an average day for you like at the moment? 
yeah so I'm still I'm working TV the joy I think the joy thing for me about TV is that it's so project-based work and I think that's reflected on how much I love doing my dissertation my master's because it was like a project at a time so since lockdown I've kind of been across six productions now which is so bizarre to think you know tv's just still running Mm. there's so much you can actually do from home that doesn't require you to be filming or anywhere else so I'm currently working um for WAG TV um on a second world war well first and second world war series I think I can say it because it's a returning series. It's War Factory Series 3. I which love is kind War of, Factory. Oh, yeah. Like, so I'm yes. now doing, so here we go, Series 3 is coming out and I'm now doing the pre-production of that. So it's just like getting the huge episodes kind of research packs together. Obviously, my director, again, wants it to be very historically accurate. But with this, it's kind of like a numbers game. So it's like, yeah. how were Factory so influential in the war? You know, these and I've just kind of covered over. I'm not going to reveal what the episodes are, obviously. <laughs> yet, but it's. I didn't think it was as cool as it is. So there's. It is. A- Do you know what blew my mind? I was watching oh. an episode, and it was about. Um, it was about the Nazis and their war factories versus America and our war factories. Yeah. And how at the beginning of the war, you know, the Nazis had this really state-of-the-art technology you know their tanks um not at the start of war but through the war mm. they built up state-of-the-art technology and their, their guns were like much better and their tanks were much better but they couldn't at the end they couldn't build anything so like by like 1942 or something you'll probably correct me on the dates but they couldn't win the war there was no way they were going to win the war yeah, because, they, they fluffed it up a bit, didn't they? Yeah, because they couldn't build anything. Like we, America, for example, were producing like thousands of tanks versus Germany's, you know, like a few hundred. So like there was no way they were going to produce enough equipment to win the war. And yeah. I thought that series was just because you never think about that. No, you don't. Uh, that's exactly what I find this so interesting. So I'm like, oh, it's not your typical D-Day, whatever kind of type stories. It's like the real nitty gritty, what's going on behind the scenes, because obviously you need these things to be producing for the war effort. And like, I've just really, uh, what you've just said is, you know, the Nazis didn't actually start rearmoring properly until 1935. Wasn't it? They started doing bits of it, but then you've got four years until you're de- you've declared war. But what they were able to do when they were taking over like Czechoslovakia and all these other countries, they were able to obtain huge war factories and that kind of maximised their war effort. But even still, they weren't operating for like a total war until I think I read this the other day. I don't want to be wrong, like 1942 to 1943, whereas the UK and the US were going at that from the off. Yeah. So and then like, at that point, it's too late, right? So, yeah, know, way too late. They've they've poked the Russian bear and it's uh, mm. all going Pete Tong. Yeah, exactly. And you're just like, what the hell, you idiots? Like you screwed yourselves from the start and you made people go through crap for nearly six years for what? Yeah, it's and you learn about their their like government structure and how that held them back, and it's just it's a great series. If anyone's listening and wants to watch a series, it's um it's super interesting. Yeah, hundred percent. So, regarding this uh, particular TV series, do you like get given certain topics that you have to go away, find out the information, and then be able to present that back to be filmed and create a documentary from it? Yeah, so what we so in this stage we're now in pre-production and so this stage is really to like how much information can we get together so 
when you pitch an episode like a series to the channel you basically have your episodes set so a development researcher or a development ap has just gone together and put together like a really fantastic presentation that's with the channel with all the kind of basic information saying this is how we intend the show to go they obviously approve it that's been commissioned and then you go off like the beat points that have been set for per episode and you basically expand upon it because they've only given like some real basic info to the channel so what i'm doing right now is getting as much information stats and obviously making sure that those stats are confirmed at least twice three times three times and then my director for this particular channel is different for every production but he will then kind of consume that come back to me with say any more information he would like um research maybe a bit more clarity etc and then once it's happy he will then go do the mammoth task of putting it into a voiceover script so obviously this is a type of series which is like archive and interview because you'll have a talking head a historian then you'll also have the voiceover going on in the background which is narrating it as well as the archive that supports it so really what I'm doing now is to make sure that voiceover is accurate for when people are watching it wow that's because you never think about all these aspects that go on with a tv series behind it and like how many people are actually involved and what it takes yeah, it's, it's monumental. I think when I learned that last year, I was like, oh, this is the first time I've ever done it. But I think when I realised I actually wanted to carry on a career in TV is when every single process, we like step we made, I was like, it just makes sense. It felt like I had a little light bulb moment to be like, I now really understand how this whole process works. Yeah, certainly. What would be some uh, personality traits that you are, uh, you've seen yourself that you think or what made you get to where you are? Oh, determination. I think for me, I've, like I said, from the start, it's always been history for me. So I would, I won't ever do something that's not history. So that's where I've ended up here. And I've, this job I've just done, it was only two weeks ago that I'd actually had my contract paused. Um, I'm not going to say the company and badmouth them, but I think they're a bit too cowardly to say, we won't continue <laughs> them on. They weren't the nicest of people. Um, and I was very relieved, but this was the Tuesday lunchtime. And then by 5.30, when I finished, I got headhunted. And that was the first time I'd been headhunted for wow. a show to be like, hi, we need a researcher. Can we have your references? And I was like, oh my God, this is just one door closed, another open. And so I think you just, if you want it, it's, it's not out of your reach. But like everyone says with TV, you can easily get into it and stuff, but like, it's sheer luck. As I said, my first one last year, I just was like, oh, all right, I'll send off the application thinking I've got no shot. I've never done this before. And by chance, they had a Second World War series commission that then led me to get all of the experience from pre-production all the way through to post-production kind of thing, which is very rare because right since then, I've only worked on, say, post-production or pre-production singularly. I've never done, I've not done the whole thing as yet again. So it was really just luck and determination and networking. Oh my God, I network. Like I keep saying I slide into DMs. I will, I'm not afraid to ask. I know who those are in the field and go, what advice have you got for someone like me starting out and saying, actually, I, I would like to go down the directing route or what mm. do I do? You know, I would, I would love to be a, say, a feature in one episode of this as a talking head as well, because I want to show my capabilities to whatever I do. So I'm going to make that cheeky remark to my director in a couple of weeks ago. Well, could I maybe sit in for one? You don't. <laughs> my mum's always told me, you don't ask, you don't get. 
and that's 100%. literally how I always approach this and especially this year after the crap everyone went through last year my motto this year is really just to make shit happen you know it's some op- unlike this recent job it kind of fell into my lap but nothing else really will so I have to make it happen I've, the other day I actually applied they would I saw there was a job for a uh, like a period type film I thought that's my next kind of career goal I'd love to go into like period dramas and films but I don't know how to do it so I emailed them and just said I'm not actually applying for this job but I'm interested in period films and whatever so could you keep me in the database and they got back to me saying we'd like to have a job interview with you on the 11th of April and I'm like what you're <laughs> such a great example for any of our listeners whatever you want to go into jobs wise this is the kind of I guess the attitude and the, and the go get you need nowadays, yeah. you know, putting a CV in front of someone is all well and good and sending a CV off to a company. Do you know how many they get? Like thousands yeah. and thousands. You've got to put yourself out there and go the extra mile. Right. Definitely. That, that's why I say I'm not afraid to say messages like Dan Snow. It's daunting, but I want to flag myself up to him as someone who's keen and who's interested and who wants to learn. I've done it with other historians who I've known have worked in TV because if there's ever an opportunity where I can help them, I always know 100% they will help me and I flagged myself up to more people. And that's the valuable thing here. Like it's constantly getting people going, oh, there's Olivia. This is what she's doing, what she's interested in. Yeah, see Dan Snow, if you're listening, reply to that DM. (laughs) I'm on the show <laughs> but but for you where where are you going to take this you know you've you've done some incredible things already with your with your history degree but where do you want to to go I know you mentioned period dramas but do you want to become uh, you know an actual historian that, that sits in there you know like uh, what do you call them the floating head is that right yeah well yeah like an expert I don't I think to be an expert someone said, I was having a lovely chat with um Alistair Bruce and he's the historical direct um advisor for Downton Abbey and luckily Alistair is a trustee for the company I work for the Commonwealth War Grace Commission so I was very fortunate to have that connection through him and he kind of said you know if you want to be one of those experts you need to write a book etc because then it shows you are an expert in that particular of history and people will fall to you when they want that so I have got an idea to potentially write a book but that sounds like a lot of effort I don't know right (laughs) now well I feel like if I build an idea together it's always there as long as no one else does it um Mm. but I'm very like I I said I can't sit around and do nothing so I've always got these ideas floating but I think for me I'd I'd love to end up with I've already got the name for I need to copyright it actually of my own production company that does purely history documentaries period tv series and films yeah that's my goal that'd be wicked how cool would that be oh it'd be insane I've already got a list on my phone anytime I come across a historical topic I can actually envision how it could be a documentary a drama or a series and I feel like that's I'm manifesting it now yeah it's so good but but um you know, with this, you know, topic of history, there's so many avenues you can go down, isn't there? You know, Mm. how if advice for someone, is it just stick to one part and really become an expert in that? Or is it dip and, you know, dab into different parts? I think it really just depends on what you're interested in. Like, I am so envious of people who are just purely passionate about the Romans or the Second World War, because then they can really become an expert in that field 
and mm. that's where you get that recognition and I think I sit back and go oh my god how I, I you know I don't want the attention and stuff but I want to be recognized within the field I want to contribute to it but without having for me like that niche I think I've struggled but then I can remind myself you've got Dan Snow, Greg Jenner who are hugely successful I mean there's other women you know Lucy Worsley etc who mm. are hugely successful but they're not experts in one field they do different things and I look and I think I'm only 23 and they're in their 40s so mm. I know I've got a journey to go along and I think my advice to be anyone is if you enjoy it just stick in it because like what's the point in doing something you don't enjoy that's always been my thing I'm not going to do anything else because I know I won't enjoy it but at least if I'm doing a job that's hard but it's history related I'm still loving it at the end yeah. of the day. Yeah I think as a history fan it's difficult to just love one particular part of history because each aspect has its own you know intrigues and you know why would you pick one when you can read anything yeah exactly I mean I look at my bookshelf now and I've got so many different types of subjects because I think well most of the time if you're on one subject sometimes you end up repeating it and you're like oh yes I've I read that before and you know it and it is interesting because that confirms your kind of knowledge and what you're taking in and understanding but to me I want there's so much out there that's so cool and different and you know like one of the books I've got up here is like Kate Lister's um A Curious History of Sex like that's just so different and something you wouldn't imagine there is a history of but she's written a huge book on it and I'm excited to jump into it to be like what on earth has she researched and found for all these (laughs) years because of course there's going to be like a history of sex you know I've got cracking like some rugby history books as well there's just so much depth my bookshelf and there's there's one about Philip and Alexander the Great which is absolutely brilliant brilliant um Adrian Codsworth you wrote that and it's it's, I'm reading it now just about to finish it it's fantastic if you get a chance and there's okay there's the Brothers York by Thomas Penn there's there's loads there's just so much if you're interested in history just jump in there's so many different things isn't there yeah 100 percent. that's all you can do have you thought about um content production as as you know for you building your personal brand because you've done all these amazing things so you know you're you're, you're quite active on twitter uh, on history twitter mm. but have you thought about you know building yourself out with your content production for your personal brand i don't know yeah i think maybe one day but Again, I, I may seem probably quite confident and I can talk about it because right now you've got me in like history live mode. But in terms of I, I don't see myself like that. It's a huge confidence thing I, I probably don't have still, which might come with a couple of years down the line and mm. age and gaining more experience. And I might come across that. But right now, I like something my dad said to me, he's like, you know, a lot of TV workers, freelance work. And he was like, oh, you need to have a name for your company, like a production cup, whatever you're doing. Mm. And I'm going, I don't need a name because I am my name. Mm. I yeah. want to be remembered for me and what I do. It just sucks that I was joke. My last name Smith because it's so bloody typical. It doesn't stand <laughs> out anywhere. Yeah. Um, that's the only downside. But at least then I am, I am my own brand. So I think maybe as years come, I will consider it. But mm. It's just, yeah, I, I, I want to feel more established. You know, I want to make my mark a bit more. Yeah, no, I absolutely understand that. And for you, what is the biggest positive of the, you know, the history industry, I guess, if you could describe it like that? I think it's like the education side of it. It's, like I said before, I didn't, I wanted to go into teaching because I love the subject so much. And I thought I have such passionate teachers who got me through GCSEs, A-levels and my degree, but 
for me to stand in front of a class and I remember my history lesson so well high school and knowing I was one of what like four who really enjoyed it and the rest just didn't care that would dishearten me so much Mm. but now the positive of being a public historian is I've got my podcast people listen because they want to listen and they enjoy it Mm. people watch the tv documentaries because they're interested and they want to watch it again too or they'll engage with me on twitter because they like history so the positive is is that the education is there without it say being forced Mm. it's a positive education that's how I always describe it because I never want it to be people to go oh I find it boring in school etc I want them to go oh I've just learned something new I completely agree yeah, with you about engaged with it yeah being yeah. at school and being you know one of the very few in in the class shout out to uh to Mr Leach from, uh, from our <laughs> shout old out school to Mr. Barber. <laughs> there you, go. you know and he was he was brilliant and I had him in sick form and I think he used to get really frustrated because I loved history but mm. I was awful at the argument side of it I would okay. just say you know I'd just write you eight pages of what happened and you know I just loved you know telling the story almost yeah. but I could never do the whole argument bit but um yeah no I, and the, he was so enthusiastic and you know we were probably one of four people like you say in the class that loved history mm. it's so it's tough and I look back on it now and I remember being such a geek because I think for me in high school especially is when I really started to get into history I remember it was so my way of really getting into military history is because I had an English teacher in year 10 actually show us the first 20 minutes of Private Ryan in an, oh, wow. um, in our English literature which is so odd because she wanted us to work our creativity and describing and all this other stuff but after that I then went home to mum was like we watched this and she was like oh, his band of brothers, go watch that. And I just got hooked. So then when mm. I was going into history lessons, it was like this new world really become enlightened to me. Even though I was passionate already, I was then even more hooked because I was like, well, what more can we learn? And I always, there was one moment with my history teacher and it, me and him were the only people who laughed. And we did like, I think we did medicine through time and surgery oh, yeah. kind yeah. of as well. Yeah. Oh, my favorite, but I love the history of medicine. I think it's Hippocrates. Oh my God, all of that. And the, the four <laughs> humors. And yeah. oh, it, I find it utterly fascinating. And so he showed us a clip from Horrible Histories, which is about the Great Plague. And honestly, I think it's series one episode. I don't know how much I know. It's like seven or nine. <laughs> It's around that it's in the first series and honestly it's one of the funniest clips I've ever seen in my life and he bawled his like he just couldn't stop laughing neither could I we're the only people in the whole class of like 30 and I think at that moment for me I was like oh this this is it for me this is where I'm going mm, like yeah. the you path know set. yeah the path was set at that moment of enjoyment and laughter <laughs> so for you on the the other side of this though what would be some less favorable aspects of this industry um I think that you can get some very interesting characters in the TV world. And for me, I'm quite a sensitive person to say the least. Like, Mm -hmm. so it is very much requiring a backbone. As I said, the job before, just only a couple of weeks ago that closed the door on me, I was very relieved, but I was so excited for the job. I honestly thought it was fantastic. And I do agree the company's fantastic. The job is brilliant, but the people were so awful. I, come away crying so much and I only did a total of like because I did part-time two days a week I did maybe 10 12 days for them and I felt awful every time because they were just so rude and awful it's very clicky but 
it's like it kind of this is the only downside you hear it a lot you will have a difficult producer you'll have a difficult director or something and it's just simply gritting your teeth and I I listen I listen to um sounds silly but um Scrubs rewatch podcast because I absolutely love Scrubs and hearing <laughs> Zach Braff talking about being a director but then he said the other week saying well you get people coming on and they have horrible directors who went but I never wanted to be like that I Mm. wanted to be friendly I wanted people to enjoy the environment and I kind of now got that in my head that if I'm ever in that position of course I always want people to feel welcome and loving and I think I having that as a guy as a captain at hockey and then I was president of a university and everyone seemed to feel they could trust me and everything like that and I hope that that leadership style can be reflected further on in jobs so that I can change that environment because I think mm. tv can be very stressful it's very money driven unfortunately you know one of the other negative sides is is that in terms of history they don't care about the history whereas I do mm. and so I have to kind of grip my teeth in the sense that in the edit something that could be really important to me it's not important to other people mm. because it's not sellable it's not what would make people watch it because that's always the intention so it's kind of that acceptance which I definitely have now but is now being like right okay deep breaths it yeah have have you watched uh because netflix have got quite a, few, a selection of sort of historical documentaries on and mm. uh, i started watching the medici um, series have oh, you watched that to what no my brother binged that not that long ago i really want to watch I, it because i love italian history yeah, i don't know how accurate it is but it it really seems to put the history at the forefront mm. um and it's fantastic and they've done a few other doc they've done like a history of rome documentary where they go through the emperors oh, um, cool. and it, th- there's there, i think it is becoming because these series uh or these services sorry like netflix Mm. and like uh like dan snow's history here you know people that have the interest are going to them so they can be more specific on what they do yeah so hopefully as you progress in your your career you know these things will become more commonplace and the history will take to the front yeah that's exactly what i'm hoping for and i think for me i see historians kick off to be like that's not historically accurate when it comes to like a film or a a drama and i'm like but the whole point is if a documentary to me is accurate that's fine because that's got to be telling the truth and you that's where you want the truth in but i would rather watch something entertaining look at bridgerton how did you guys watch it do you know what? I didn't. Oh my God. <laughs> Watch it. Even just for like the sheer, the production scale in that sense, you know, the pre- whatever. It's, it's obviously very much romantic, yeah. but like the ability, like, and this is what I find fascinating, like that down to Abbey, how they bring it to life and they use little historical kind of nods and there's little details that are really accurate, but who cares if the story isn't completely accurate because what they're doing is creating and bringing history to life. So then mm. it's how I got into it. Band of Brothers is how I, I learned everything about the Second World War and inspired my whole military history kind of thing and where I've ended up now. Mm. But someone could be watching Bridgerton or Downton and going oh my god that's so interesting history and pick up a book or go read an article online or listen to a podcast about that history because they were interested and Mm. I think that's the power in it It doesn't always have to be correct but it has to be that magic so it's in the right context yeah definitely so we like to talk a little bit about um, salary expectations for people when they go into the industry. So we go mm-hmm. away, look at some average data and see if it fits with what you've said. So we Ooh. picked TV researcher. 
Yeah. Um, and, and the average salary apparently in the UK is around £30,000. But going on what you said, um, you know, it's freelance as well. So really, it's really difficult to come up with an average figure because it's on it's about opportunities and how much you work, right? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, yeah. what is what is your what's the monthly for thirty k? Oh, I don't know. What's, what's I 30? really don't know. Jules is a bit of a mathematician. Go on, Jules. Quick, get to uh, some quick maths. It's going to be about nine over t- monthly. Uh, oh, he's been put under K. pressure. <laughs> oh, wait, it's probably wait. around. I, it's, it sounds about two thousand something like that. Maybe over. Yeah, a bit, over a bit 2, over. A bit yeah. over, isn't it? I, yeah. don't, I don't. Do you know what? I really don't know because, like, when I started last year, I think. When I was initially on two weeks, I swear when I broke it down, I was on like 60 odd quid a day. This was to do like two weeks in London. Obviously, I didn't live in London. It's commuting and all this stuff as well. So like you, the travel was... wiped out your money. Oh my God, it did. And yeah. like, I wasn't, obviously, like I said, I finished my degree. I didn't work for four months. And I was so fortunate that my dad, well, he's a quantity surveyor. And he was like, look, here's some money just to get you by for these two weeks until you get paid. And mm. I'm so grateful for that. And I've paid him back since, but... To then go my sit down with my director when he offered me the full-time job and was like okay so what salary do you want and I was like I have no clue like I didn't know what to ask for what to do I didn't know what seemed cheeky and I kind of went higher to then negotiate a bit lower but since then I've just every job I've got and I've bumped up a, my day rate a tenner or 20 quid depending on how big the company is and especially for one I've just worked for I had a, I spoke with a lovely producer the other week and um, mm. she works in TV and stuff. She's just got a book come out actually, Helen um, Carl, throw her name out there. And she, she told me when I, she went, this is what you should be going for now with your experience. So when I got asked, what's your weekly rate? I was like, uh, this. And they were like, yeah, okay, cool. And I thought, yeah. oh, yeah. So it, I think it is dependent on the production company. I think the bigger you can probably wing it and the more experience as well. Mm. And like obviously working from home has been such a blessing because it's like we're not really spending much at all. Yeah. So to still kind of be cheeky with my day rate and thinking, wow, this is nice. But <laughs> I think it is one of these things that just it will go up in time, like obviously with anything. Yeah. And what is something that you never expected to have to deal with in this industry, but you do? Oh, that's such so something a good that's not question. in the job description. Um, oh, the hours, because the, it is set out that it, you can be told this is your week rate, but they'll go, you need to work basically all night on the Wednesday because we need this delivered Thursday morning. Right. Like, or you have to work a weekend here or film. You know, I, I've only done bits of filming on location. Obviously, COVID has put a bit of a halt to that. Mm. But it is, I think, the unpredictable nature of filming and the kind of not toll, but what you really have to get yourself into and doing. And I, I, I see that as a really interesting challenge because it's like, especially this year I've been at home, I'm like, bring it on. I'm yeah. happy to be on set now to like 11 at night or longer and doing things because it's like you get the job done at the end of the day. The mm. channel, most of the time, the channel, if you deliver the one, two, three episodes, then they pay. You don't get paid when they commission it kind of thing. So it is really a money-driven industry because they need things to be produced and done. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's kind of not really in the job description. You could think it's nine to five, but most time it won't be. So mm-hmm. it's kind of balanced. But then you will have moments where, especially last year, it comes to the end of production. I was working in the garden doing bits and then it was like, oh, cool, I'm done. I just did two <laughs> hours work. 
I'm not going to say anything else now. <laughs> like, so it has its swings and roundabouts, and I'd yeah. say. Um, and what's two two of your best pieces of advice for anyone listening to this and thinking, do you know what? I'd like to do what she's done. Oh, network. Network. Don't ever be afraid to network and just go up and ask someone for help. I mean, I've always said I've had so many people who have, I've just popped up to and say, hi, can I have any advice? Or I want to learn. You know, if you're keen and you're so interested and you want to learn, people will always be like, oh, my God, I got help. I will help you. Mm. That's probably like my first one. And then my second one would be like, I think especially if you really are interested in history, it's like we said before, if you're not too sure on where you want to go, don't panic because there are so many avenues of history that you probably aren't even aware of and your universities and schools actually aren't aware of either so there are hundreds of historians on twitter and stuff i mean always drop me i'm happy my dms are open if you want to drop me any like a message to talk about things or whatever like because there are loads of opportunities out there it's just necessarily spending that real time and finding them that is the key thing here and uh would you still go into this industry knowing everything you know now yeah definitely I think I always like I said I keep coming back to it but Band of Brothers got me into it and I think really I knew back then I wanted to be in something that got brought history to life because how else can you do it I think Mm. it's so fascinating that TV and film can create a moment in time that we literally will never see ever Mm. and yet they have this ability to do so and you know when I went through other like down to tabby and loads of i love period dramas and films so i think for me i was always going to end up down that route it was just the case of how and i think i was so lucky to start off where i have because that was my how well olivia it's been a uh, a genuine pleasure talking to oh, you and, and you geeking out with the with a bit of history so thank you so <laughs> much for coming on oh thank you thank you so much where can people find you on uh, social media so I'm just Olivia Smith Hist at uh, on Twitter. Uh, and come find me there. That's where you'll see all of my content. And yeah, like I said, if you've got any questions, feel free to drop me a message. Thanks so much, Olivia. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.